Some people collect stamps, precious stones, or artifacts from another time. Me, I collect stories. I love stories that come out of conversation because they hold so many things all at once. Memories, emotions, lessons, new perspectives, comic relief, and so much more. They have the power to move us, to open our hearts, to connect us, to heal us. Stories offer a window into another person's universe, and I get to see what it's like to experience life from their eyes. They are an invitation to celebrate what makes us unique and what makes us the same. But most of all, I love how stories bring us together. How they harmonize us. How they remind me that each one of us is an essential voice in one glorious symphony. Welcome, my friends, to the harmony of stories. Hi. Welcome to episode five. It's Tuesday, April eleventh. Still cool weather. Still dark outside. It's ten to seven in the morning, and I'm thinking about all of you. And I'd like to start with some thank yous. Thank you to our listeners and to those who've sent me feedback and. And for your continued love and support, Sam Calibri, Rex Angelina, T, Liz, Hillary, Keith, Penny, Maggie. Thank you so much. This is a big week for us because we are going to be picking up our motorhome. On Friday, so just a few days time now, and we're gonna be driving it from Tennessee, two hours away, back here to Kentucky in these small country roads and highways. So that should be interesting. <laughs> so things are starting to feel a bit more real now. Things are gonna start moving faster. Yesterday, we the kids and I worked on packing. Up our books, and we were sorting through which ones we're going to bring with us, take with us, and which ones we're going to put into storage. Yeah, just my husband's been painting, and mowing, and streaming, and and all that. And I was thinking earlier about how much I'm going to miss everybody, how much I'm going to miss this place. I've fallen in love with Kentucky, and you know I've moved around so much, and I've met so many amazing people. And you know it's hard; it's still hard. It doesn't make it any easier. I guess it is a little bit easier <laughs> to say not goodbye, but see you another time. Yeah, I've just really enjoyed the friends that I met here. But I'm sure I'll be back. 
For this episode, I am excited to share with you my conversation with my friend Maggie. Maggie is our vegetable farmer. She and her family run Old Home Place Farm in Oneida, Kentucky. They're about 40 minutes away from us by car. We've been to her farm a few times. She hosted a reef-making workshop. Uh, I think it was two Christmases ago when we joined that, and it was so much fun. Her and her husband Will gathered all the you know supplies for it from their forests, and it just smelled amazing. All the evergreens in the middle of winter, you know, and, and the pine cones, and she had like dried orange slices, and it was beautiful. She also hosted a farm tour, I think it was last summer, and we got to see a lot of the veggies growing and the flowers, the bees, and she also hosted a gathering, I think it was probably near the fall, it wasn't super hot anymore, and it was a gathering of um, of all the, of all, all of their customers, and so it was really neat to meet, to meet everybody, and connect with them and we had a bonfire and sausages on sticks and marshmallows lots of space for the kids to run around and around the end of the evening we got to see their sheep run from the uh, the pasture they were in down this road all the way to their barn where they were going to sleep for the night and there was a lot, a, a lot of sheep, and it was breathtaking to see them just going by us so fast, but so gracefully. I don't know, I thought it was stunning. That's a beautiful memory that I treasure. And after, you know, once they got to their barn area, Maggie's sister-in-law closed the gate, and we were in there with them, and we, we hung out with the sheep for a while, and the kids just adored that, and they did not want to leave. There were some tears when it was time to go home because it was just such a blessing to to hang out with, with the sweet animals. So Maggie has a CSA, which stands for Community Supported Agriculture. So we, we talk about that if you don't know what that is. She explains it really well. She also has a website where you can order you know the vegetables and meat and honey and all sorts of farm goodies that they offer uh, a la carte because the CSA is more of a subscription. And so we've been, my family and I have been a part of that, of both of those things. And, and I get to see Maggie every week or every few weeks when we collect our order. And it's, it's really, it's been such a pleasure to meet your farmer and see, see them regularly and, you know, exchange stories about homesteading and farming and and just anything really under the sun. And then getting to meet the other customers as well, who are usually like-minded, you know, because we all value being able to eat local. So yeah, we start off talking about um, the CSA and how Maggie started doing that, their journey to that. And she also talks about their farm and what they offer and a brief history of it. She shares some memories of her childhood growing up in a vegetable farm in Ohio. And I ask her 
about how do you manage all this? You know, how do you manage a farm? How do you go about the growing season? And so she shares about all the planning that goes into it and the joys and the challenges of of growing food and what a typical day is like. And near the end, she shares a story about dung beetles in relation to rotational grazing of cattle and sustainable and regenerative farming. And we talk a little bit about silvopasture. They're planting a lot of trees in their pasture, and there are a lot of benefits to doing that. She also shares the story of how she met her husband, Will, and I enjoyed that a lot. (laughs) It's very sweet. And actually, the song that came up for me this week to be our song of the week is is based on that story. It's with a little help from my friends by the Beatles, because there's a line in the song that goes something like, do you believe in the love at first sight? Yes, I'm certain that it happens all the time. And I think that applies to, you know, in like a romantic situation or when you connect with with people, but I also relate to it in in just our love for for things that that we enjoy doing or for for the sunrise or the sunset and how that makes you feel inside when you see such beauty and I was telling Maggie I think it was after we recorded for the podcast that one of my favorite things in this world is when I talk to people and they're sharing with me something that they love that they love doing you know their passion and it could be anything farming or um, I don't know computer games or um, painting and you can see the light in their eyes when they're talking about it because they're so excited about it it's just so delicious being in that energy and and it's always such a, a blessing to to meet people who who really love and enjoy what they do for a living or otherwise. But Maggie Maggie is one of these people and she's great. She's a very joyful, positive lady and I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to connect with her. So here we go, guys. I hope you enjoy listening in. Okay, good evening. I am at Oneida, is that right? Oneida, Kentucky, with my friend Maggie. Hi, Maggie. Hi. (laughs) So Maggie has a farm, and we buy our vegetables from her. And they also sell meat and honey. And you've got jam now, too, and maple syrup. Yes. There's lots of delicious things. And Maggie grows her produce organically. And I found Maggie when we first moved to Kentucky. I had to find uh, somewhere where we could buy her produce. And my husband had Googled you know, the area for farms, and he found a farm called Sustainable Harvest Farm in London, 
and I spoke to a nice man named Ford Waterstrats, and he told me about Maggie and that we're closer to her. And actually, I was looking for meat, and they had stopped um, selling meat. And so that's, that's how I found her, because when Sam was trying to look around, he couldn't see your farm for some reason on Google. And so we joined Maggie's CSA, and maybe you can explain to our listeners what that is if you don't know, uh, if you're listening and you don't know what that is. And we've enjoyed it very much. And I see Maggie once a week or every other week to pick up our order. And it's been, it's been really fun to chat with her. So yeah, shall we start with that about your farm and what you offer? Yes. So our farm is Old Home Place Farm, and we have two different pieces of property. So we farm, my husband and I farm with his parents, and they um, have a farm that's just four miles down the road from us. And at one point in time, in I think the late 1800s, all of the land between their farm and our farm was one farm. And then the um, Squire Hensley was the man's name who had that farm. Okay. And he had seven daughters. And so when he died, he had in his will that it would be broken up in seven chunks for his seven daughters. And he oh, wow. told all of his daughters to take care of the old home place. And that is why we're called Old Home Place Farm. So now there are many, many people that live in between me and Will and his parents. But um, this piece of property that Will and I currently own and his parents' property they currently own are the two ends of that Squire Hensley farm. And Will and his parents um, raise livestock. Um, and we have livestock on our piece of property and on Ronnie and Gloria, our in-laws' names, piece of property. And then we also, or I mostly raise vegetables. So I grew up on a vegetable farm in Ohio and I had moved to Kentucky for work. And after Will and I got married and I was going to move up to the Oneida area, which was too far of a commute for my previous job. We thought we'd add vegetables onto the farm um, because they were already selling meat. Okay. So currently we are selling meat that we raise, beef and pork and vegetables cut and cut flowers and eggs. And then we are also selling products from other East Kentucky farms. So we have the honey that Francis mentioned that some of the bees are at my property. I'm looking at them right now on the window, <laughs> but I'm not the beekeeper. I get all of the sweet rewards of getting to eat the honey and they pollinate all my crops. And right now they're all around the yard all day and like the purple dead nettle that's in my yard. So that's Aww. lovely, but I don't have to do any of the bee work. And, um, and then he, Randy is the beekeeper. He has far, um, some bees at his property, which is just on the other side of Oneida from us. Okay. And then we also are selling jam from, um, Acres of Grace Farm, which is on the other side of Oneida from us and maple syrup 
from Southdown Farm there in Letcher County. So a little bit farther away, but still in our region. And we've also sold cheese from Wildcat Mountain Farm in East Bernstadt, which is outside of London. I forgot and, about that. And um, I worked at Wildcat Mountain Cheese during the winter of 2019 to 2020, which was really wonderful because I didn't know anything about cheese making. So I had a big <laughs> education on cheese making, and that was fantastic. I'm so jealous. Um, it was just a wonderful experience. So um, since then, I've become close with Clara and Ronnie, those farmers, and have carried their cheese. So we're selling things we produce on the farm, but also have really wanted to work in collaboration with other farmers in our area to help them sell their products and yeah. really make it feel like there are room for all farmers and that we don't really have to compete against so each, each other so much, but what are ways we can collaborate together? I love that so much. There's room for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, there's abundance everywhere. I was so excited when you started selling the maple syrup. It's so great to have local maple syrup. I've told so many people about it. <laughs> oh, God. Yes, I agree. And I, as I said before, grew up in Ohio, which, you know, is not the maple syrup capital. You know, it's not Canada or the Northeast U.S., but there still is a lot more maple syrup production there than here in Kentucky. And I grew up um, making maple syrup at my parents' farm just on a small scale, like enough for us. Yeah. But one of my dad's best friends, um, he did have a maple syrup operation. Wow. And um, some of my relatives, like my great aunt, I remember she had a whole sugar shack in the woods with all this maple wow. syrup equipment and their sugar bush. And actually my parents ended up with her equipment when um, she passed away. So it was kind of sad to come move to Kentucky. I moved here in 2010 and not have any locally produced maple syrup and to have to buy it to the grocery store so it wow. has been really exciting in the last few years to find there are now quite a few local farms in kentucky especially in eastern kentucky that are doing maple syrup production really yeah so there's more than one there is south down farm whose maple syrup i sell through our online farm store is one of the larger producers, but there are okay. some others as well. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. I love I love buying local. It's just, it's so special. So can you tell us what a CSA is? Yes. So a CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture. And it is... The idea is that the customers are helping financially support the farm by buying into a share of the farm. So a customer would pay up front a set amount of money before the growing season begins, and then every week they would receive a share of the harvest of what's ready. So it's kind of acknowledging that farming can be a really risky um, situation for the farmer with having to deal with um, really unpredictable weather or deer eating stuff and that the you know the customer would kind of have your back and like we gave you money and we're gonna experience the season with you and so this 
you know, they've been around for a very long time and really gotten more popular in maybe the last decade. And so a lot of times now, the easiest way to describe it is that it's a subscription for vegetables. Okay. Because now I just feel like in the world, so many things are a subscription, that Mm -hmm. that's the easiest way to say that you're subscribing to the farm and you pay a set amount of money and then you get a set amount of vegetables every week. And you can also have a CSA. Most commonly, when I'm talking about CSA, I'm talking about vegetables, and most people are. But you can also do a CSA um, subscription for meat, which we do, or cut flowers, or, you know, lots of farms do them in different ways. But yeah, it's like just a kind of, in its purest sense, like a relationship between customers and the farmer who are kind of like all sharing in the farm together. Did you... When you started selling vegetables, have you always done a CSA or what was it like when you first started here in Kentucky? Yeah, we did not do a CSA when we started. So we started doing vegetables on the farm in 2014. And we knew Will and I bought this piece of property in the fall of 2013 and knew that we were getting married soon and that I was going to move here and kind of started planning of if, you know, what I would do for work or, you know, what kind of our future would hold. And mm-hmm. so when we decided that we were going to add vegetables onto the farm, it really was a decision of like, well, how would we sell them? It's kind of during 2013, I had visited a lot of farmers markets in eastern Kentucky, kind of scoping them out. Okay. But at that time, they were very inconsistent. So, like for instance, I went to one, um, and at the time it said it wasn't, it didn't exist, like it wasn't there. Oh no. <laughs> and then I learned later, like they skipped that week because someone had rented out the picnic shelter they usually use, but like there was no way to know that. And I thought, okay, I really can't depend on farmer's market sales in our area to really have a like money making or breaking even business. It's not consistent enough. Yeah. And I really knew in a lot of the farmer's market seasons were maybe only Memorial Day through Labor Day, and I knew that I would be growing vegetables. Oh, yeah. You know, a lot longer season than that. Um, and currently, we're raising them all year round, although my main sale season of vegetables is May through the end of December. Okay. But as I said before, I do have four high tunnels, so I can be going all year round. I have some. At that time, I didn't have the high tunnels, but <laughs> anyway, I'm getting off track. It was, I was like, I don't think I can really depend on the farmer's markets in our area. And you know what most people would do, or Ford does, who he has a wonderful farm, much, much larger than me, is that you're going to a larger population center, Knoxville, Mm -hmm. Lexington, to sell your organic produce. And that is completely fine. And I mean, I grew up on a vegetable farm and we were driving from like our rural town, mostly closer into Cincinnati. How to far sell. Was that? My parents live 42 miles from Cincinnati. So, oh. and it, they were going to mostly selling into markets that were on like the northern edge of Cincinnati. So it's probably only about 30 minutes to where they were going. So, okay. 
in terms of where we are now, yeah. that's very close. Yeah. So for me, for context for everyone listening, if I was going to go to Lexington to sell at the farmer's market, it would be a two-hour one-way trip. Or Knoxville is two and a half hours from our farm. So that's not unheard of. Lots of farms across the country, that's what you're doing. You have a farm in a rural area, and then you're going to take your produce or meat or whatever into a city just because there's more people. Mm-hmm. And... Going out of your way to eat locally is not something I can expect of all people. So it just happens to be in a city, there are more people. So there's just like more of that small percentage that are going to go out of their way to buy local food. Because I realize it's not as convenient as going to the grocery store. Like you have to work to do it. Yeah, but then around here though, the... It's slim pickings for what you find at the store. There's barely any you know yes produce yes it is yeah yeah so um but it was really important to me and to will that we were selling food and providing food for people in eastern kentucky where we live at yeah so it never really entered my mind when we were trying to decide how we'd sell this that we would drive to lexington or knoxville yeah um and that that is a thing to hard thing to work out financially and i think a lot of people you know might look at us and be like what are you doing that makes no sense but it really is important to me that people here can eat our food and um, like you said there isn't yeah that much variety and i don't want to take this to people in lexington i want my neighbors to get to eat the food yeah and i'm so grateful for that so so grateful so it really was figuring out how do we get to sell our produce to people where we live um without there being really good established like farmers markets and also knowing that we were starting out brand new, you know, mm. I had farmed with my parents and then I had a job where I um, assisted people with like home gardens, but that's, it's different of having a home garden than like farming for production for sales. So I had an effort done that by myself. <laughs> so, you know, it wasn't a thing where I'm like, I can contact your grocery, local grocery <laughs> store and get it. You know, I'm like, yeah. I've never done this before. We just bought this property, you know, there is so much of knowing what your property is like and where it mm. holds water and all these things that you might not know when you've just started out and, wow. um, you know, building up your soil. So, so what we finally came down on deciding how we would sell stuff in our first year in 2014 was we did toss around the idea of a CSA, but that is very scary as a farmer yeah. Because you took took people's money up front. Or in our situation, people don't... So traditionally a CSA, everybody would pay like the full amount for the CSA before the growing season. So the farmer has all the money up front to purchase seeds and fertilizer or compost and, you know, um, potting soil to get this up and running. Um, but... Um, I guess I can get to this later when I get to how we did switch to a CSA. But that for one, that seemed that we could not ask people in our community to pay, you know, between, depending on the size of a CSA, you know, $450 to $1,000 
before they ever saw a vegetable. Yeah. One for um, we'd never done this before. So yeah. why would you trust us? <laughs> and two, um, not everybody has that much money that they can give you in like, one chunk. Yeah. So, and and then if I did take people's money, I'm like, well, what about if something bad happens? I've never farmed on my own. It's it's really a lot of, I think, some farmers now, CSA is more popular, like, well, I want to do a CSA. Yeah. And I'm like, don't do it in your first season. Like, find another way to sell because it does take time, I think, when you're far- first time farming on your own to figure out what your systems are and your land and your nutrients in your soil and how much time everything takes to make sure you have enough volume for all your customers. And so I was like, CSA is out. Yeah. <laughs> I can't start. That's way too much pressure on me. I, I can't be, I can't take people's money and then think I'm going to grow them vegetables right off the bat. So I knew we couldn't do that. So we were, didn't have a lot of options. <laughs> like, we're like, we're be creative. So we um, started an online farm store in 2014. And we sold all of our vegetables. Most, we started out the idea being we would just sell things a la carte off an online store, but then people would, we'd bag them up and then people would pick them up like you would like at a CSA drop off point where you, everybody come meet at one time and get their produce. And then before that time, before 2014, Will and his dad had already been doing a meat CSA that they started in 2012. So we did okay. have some concept of the CSA model right. like working for us. And at that time, we did have a bigger um, CSA wait list than like we could accommodate. So we did have an idea that that was like a pretty wonderful way to sell things and interact with our customers. But it wasn't something we were ready to do with vegetables. Yeah. But at that time, we were like, well, we can put individual cuts of meat on the online store, too. Because a lot of people were like, well, I just want to try a pack of hamburger. But with the CSA model, you know, they really couldn't. So in 2014, we really changed how what we were doing and started selling everything a la carte online. Okay. Yes. And that definitely was... It worked well, but it definitely was weird. And it's hard to explain in the year 2023 how weird that was <laughs> in the year 2014 in Eastern Kentucky, or maybe really anywhere. When I would tell even other farmers in other parts of the country that I sold my stuff on an online store a la carte, they would just look at me and, and they'd be like, what? You're doing what? So, and even in general, I mean, like, I, I mean, I think I bought clothing online in 2014, but it just really, it's hard to explain that just even nine years ago, that that was a kind of a weird thing to have an online that store. strange, right? Yeah. So, especially remember. here and especially food, because you couldn't do an online, like, Kroger order at that time. Or, you know, it was, I think it was especially seemed weird to people that they couldn't see what food they were picking out, and yeah. what, you know, they were doing You're online. Pioneer, yeah, so it was really weird, but it worked really well. But we did also end up in 2014 going to our local Clay County Community Farmers Market because okay. it had be, been defunct, and they started it up again in 2014. And we really felt that we couldn't not go for just the community aspect and kind of giving support to the farmer's market. Okay. 
And also thought, you know, well, maybe we pick up some customers that then in the winter still might want to buy some spinach Mm -hmm. when the market season's over. So we did do the Clay County Community Farmers Market for a number of years. Okay. And the online farm store. But then what happened was we had like a customer pizza party um, that we had invited a lot of our like really most dedicated online store customers to and kind of just get their feedback about like what did they think and a discussion and what came out of that was a lot of people saying oh it's so hard to remember to go into the online store and I forget and then I don't get my stuff and I really I don't even care what it is could you just like bring it could you just bring (laughs) me vegetables and I was like Hmm. Well, what you're describing is a CSA. Um, you're describing a vegetable subscription. You're describing a CSA. And that really blew my mind because I really thought that consumers would want more choice. Yeah. And what you were getting, especially with your food. Yeah. And what came back from our customers was... It would be more convenient if you just brought it to me. (laughs) Wow, and you just picked out what you put in. Yes, and I don't care what it is. I'm going to eat vegetables, and I trust you, and I just want you to bring me food. So I think that was in 2017. So in 2018, I did a bit of a trial. I might be off on the years, but anyway, around this general time frame, I just put Maggie's Farm Mystery Bag on the <laughs> online store. So it was not a CSA. It was not a subscription. You couldn't sign up for the whole year. You still, I wasn't really doing what they said, because you still had to go on every week and choose the Maggie's Farm Mystery Bag. <laughs> but I just wanted to see, like, if people, I kind of want to test if you chose that, how did that experience go for you? That's a really sensible thing to do. Yeah, so I did that all that year, and I was shocked how many people would choose that every week. Wow, I'm pretty surprised too. And I was like, my mind is just completely blown. And growing up, um, I said I grew up on a vegetable farm, and my parents were going into Cincinnati. What they were, what they were mostly selling, they did like five farmers markets a week, and they have like an on-farm store. Okay. Wow. And they were very much like. Oh, I would never do a CSA. And I think with their mindset, which is maybe where I got it from, that the customer doesn't get to choose. And don't you want them to get to choose? And by seeing what they choose really informs maybe what you're growing. And, mm-hmm. you know, instead of saying, I grew a bunch of this, you should have it. It's what's ready. So, um, but about that time, my parents now have a CSA. So we've all, oh. <laughs> we've all come around on the idea of a CSA. And I really love the CSA now, and I do think it's made me feel a lot closer to my customers in a lot of ways. I feel like Mm -hmm. I get some more interaction because there's people that I am seeing if they didn't, if they would forget to buy or something. I'm now seeing like every single week and kind of get more of their feedback. And I mean, it's also just come with time and the way we were doing things in on-farm events. But um, so people were choosing that mystery bag. So the next year, I still was pretty much doing farmer's market and online store orders. And at this point, we do sell to some restaurants. So at this point, we're selling to them a bit. But um, I did a trial run. This maybe was 2018. I can't remember. 
of I did do a real CSA. Okay. But I only opened it to 10 people. Right. So I was still just doing online store mainly, but I'm like, let's see how these 10 guinea pigs, <laughs> you know, who knew they were guinea pigs and okay. had been long time online store customers, right. the people that told me, I don't care what it is, just bring it to me. And I'm okay. like, do you want to sign up for a CSA? <laughs> so they did, and it went really well. So um, pretty much, I think it's probably in the year 2020, we really switched over to a CSA main model. And so we still do the online store sales, but it's very little. And unfortunately, um, sometimes I don't have enough produce after CSA and restaurants. So sometimes I, my goal for 2023 is to have like a lot of stuff on the online store for people that a CSA isn't right for. But now our main way we're selling stuff is CSA. So it's really grown our business a lot. It's been really wonderful for us. We've met a lot of new people. Um, and then we also sell to another CSA program. That's an aggregated CSA that gets farm some food from other farms. Okay. So we're kind of doing our CSA and another CSA. How do you manage all restaurants? this? Um, <laughs> it's kind of a struggle, but it's not always as good as I want it to be, especially if I'm trying to think about like, how am I really maintaining relationships with customers and making sure what I'm doing really matches up with what they want or making sure there's opportunities for them to come out and spirit against the farm, which is something I really want to do. But um, sometimes I just get honestly too exhausted yeah. in the main growing season when it might be the time that people come out and actually see that there's produce here yeah. to do a whole lot of that. But it is a, it is exhausting, but I love doing it. I love that you love doing it. Yeah. Because, yeah, wow. And we appreciate, you know, we appreciate the work that you do. How do you, so do you, is there like a formula or something? Like, okay, this, I know that I'm going to, do you like plant twice as much as you think you need or not so much, not that much? How do you determine that? How much to grow? Yeah, that is the challenging part. <laughs> it really comes down to a lot of the time, even when I was, you know, pre-CSA even, you know, and I'm growing things in a permanent bed system, which is maybe hard to describe, but it means that my field is broken up into um, garden beds that are all 30 inches across and 100 feet long. And then there's like a pathway next to it. And then there's another one. So I'm never like plowing up the entire field, only those beds. And so everything's like a standardized size. Okay. So I know, I kind of know from records from past years, like if I have one bag of, bed of arugula, how many bags of arugula I can harvest off that bed. Okay. So when I'm planning it out... I can be like, okay, I have 75 CSA members and I have 50 in that aggregated CSA. So that's 125. And if I think want everybody to have one bag of arugula at, in the same week, you know, how much needs planted right. at a time. But it is a little bit difficult. And it's probably, I think when people are like, what do you do in the wintertime as a vegetable farmer? A lot of it 
is looking at spreadsheets and trying to figure out like what can I have what how can I fit everything in my field because I am space limited and what can I have at this time of year versus that time of year and enough abundance for everyone in the CSA plus some for the online store and restaurants in that week and trying to figure out what's enough to plant at a time and how that all fits into a puzzle in the field. Um, Do you enjoy that part or is it tedious? I enjoy it, but it is very frustrating. Um, and it's always like, and did I figure it out right? And um, it, it's very slow going. It takes me a long time to do it. And mm. that's something I kind of need to do before I like make a seed order because that's going to inform how many seeds I need and stuff. But I, I do enjoy it. It's a different kind of work than the physical stuff I'm doing the rest of the year, so I don't mind it. But it is challenging. And then another challenging part of that is just when it's June, um, making sure that plan gets implemented. Because sometimes I'm like, it's, I'm really, really exhausted. And I've just ran out of hours in the week to get the next thing planted. And it needs to be planted right now so that I have stuff to fill CSA boxes in August or, you know, it's rained for two weeks straight. So I really can't, um, you know, till up that other bed and plant the stuff in it Mm. that needs planted right now so that I'll have stuff to fill the box in August. So that's always a bit of a continual struggle and something I'm rethinking when I'm making that plan in the winter. So for instance, I have noticed in the past couple of years, I really struggle with having enough produce in August, okay. which sounds ridiculous because everyone with a home garden, I feel like, because I just have produce coming out of my ears <laughs> in August. But what happens is I'm always trying to really make sure I have enough stuff to really fulfill and make the first beginning of the CSA season in May and June really awesome. And then my field gets kind of full. And it's hard to get the successions of more produce planted in June that you might harvest in August for. Or like I'm planting my tomatoes early in high tunnel, so I would have them a month early. But sometimes by August, they're a little going out or if they've got disease and they aren't producing as much. Okay. Um, so this winter has been a lot of like, well, how do I fix that problem? Yeah. So... Um, I have like planned, I'm going to have some more successions of like later tomatoes, but also I'm going to grow potatoes this year, which is not a thing I've done in years because they take up a lot of space that I don't have. And I have a very complicated weed management system and because weeds are a major problem and the way you grow potatoes really doesn't fit in with Mm. my way I'm managing weeds. So I haven't done them. And I'm like, you know, you can get a lot of farmers that are at the farmer's markets have those or, you know, they're very cheap at the grocery store. A lot of people around here too might have home gardens. So they're maybe not need that much produce from me. So, but maybe they do want some arugula, but they're growing potatoes. They don't need my potatoes, but I am growing potatoes, but I'm growing some fingerling potatoes and some purple potatoes and some fun Mm -hmm. potatoes. But I'm going to grow them because they should be ready by that August time slot. Right. And if I need them, okay, you know, they can kind of be sitting there for that. And if I don't need them, you know, they can hang out in storage for like my fall CSA crops. So um, 
anyway, it is a lot of planning and a lot of like a field map of making a puzzle and just, you know, deciding like what can, what things can go well in a CSA box too. You know, it's sometimes it's hard to say, I want there to be all the stuff this week for people to make a really nice homemade salsa. So that's like, but I need my cilantro to be ready the same week as this. But sometimes I'm trying to also think about like how people use the food and giving lots of support for how you might actually use it. So that's something I've tried to get better over time with sending out recipes to CSA members. And we have a Facebook group, which I wish I had a better way to do that, but that people can share recipes with each other. And like last year in that group, I, really tried to hold myself to telling everyone how I used everything in my CSA to kind of be like, wow. you know, Will and I are using a medium CSA and this is what we did with it in case people, because I think sometimes people will struggle with when you didn't get to choose what it was. Yeah. It can be a struggle to be like, what do I do with this? Yeah. yeah. If it was just me living on my own, I'd just be like super adventurous and just do whatever. But it's kind of hard. My family's a bit picky. Yes. Which is understandable. <laughs> yeah. Which is kind of the whole problem with the CSA and why I do want to make sure going forward if I have enough produce to put, make sure there's more on the online store for because I think there are people that want local food mm-hmm. and would like to get it for me but they're like I can't commit to getting you know whatever thing I'm going to get in that week so yeah but you've got you know quote unquote extras too like you have blueberries sometimes and strawberries yes. and did you ever think of doing like melons or they just take up too much space yeah and I have grown them in the past they take up so much space Right. Okay. Yeah. But I do have seeds for this year, and it's kind of been a thing where I would like to grow more melons. Um, if it gets to be, you know, the end of May, a time when it's like, okay, they have to be planted right now, and I end up like, I do have some space in the field, then I probably will plant them because I love them. And I, and they take, they just take up so much space. And I do grow like a lot of winter squash that takes up a ton of space. But that's been a calculation that I've kind of made that's okay with that space because it holds in storage. So right, if yeah. I have really bumper crop, it doesn't have to be sold right that week. Mm. I can sell it all fall or into the winter. Last year I had a crop failure, but, um, but melons are more like it's ripe right now and you yeah. have to move it right now. Yeah. So it's kind of taking up a lot of space for then something I have to move right away. Um, and then I'm usually growing like little small melons um, two, not like a big watermelon. Right, yeah. Um, mostly because they're heavy. Sometimes I get exhausted if I haven't moved that many melons and transport them. It's really difficult. So melons have been a hard thing for me, but I love melons. And I think <laughs> other people, well, like it would be a really nice treat to have a melon in August. So yeah, we love yeah. melons. There's so many things I wish I could do that I'm currently like, I'm not currently in the space and or with time or space in my field or like mental space in my head to execute yeah okay yeah is there such a thing as a typical day maggie's typical day (laughs) in the growing main growing season most every morning monday through friday would be harvesting and it sometimes is a challenge because harvesting everything and then like washing it and packing it takes so long. So 
Um, I have deliveries Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday night. So Monday through Thursday morning is pretty much like just harvesting. Wow. Um, and because um, most things, too, have to be harvested before it gets hot. So for some things that might, you know, even be before 9 a.m. if it's a really hot day and it's green. So, wow. Um, and then if it's a delivery day, the afternoon, like after lunch, we'll be packing orders and then I'll head out on deliveries and on the delivery nights and I probably don't get home till like 9 p.m. So usually employees will get here and we'll start at seven harvesting. And then if it's a day where I don't have to go out on the delivery route, the afternoon is going to be probably like weeding things or um, like prepping beds for a new planting, some trellising tomatoes. It's going to be some kind of like field maintenance work. Okay. And then Fridays are always like, feel like a wonderful, glorious day to me (laughs) because there's no like pressure to have a certain amount of things harvested or packed. And it can be like an entire day that I'm here. And if I have employees here too that were just doing field maintenance or planting new things and kind of catching up on all the field work that needs to be done. And then usually on Saturdays and Sundays, we will do some field work, but I have and will gotten to a place now where we're trying to kind of guard our weekends so that, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. we might have high school students. I'll be like, I can work on the weekend. And I'm like, it, I understand that's great for you, but I, I'm so exhausted. Even if I'm doing work here, I kind of want to just bump myself. Yeah. Or I do want the time to spend with family or see friends or go kayaking or just sleep in or, and so, um, over time, I think it's been a really big priority to be like, we can at least have some time off and sometimes I'm realistic to like have the weekend off, but I at least have a bit of a slower schedule and maybe Will and I, because my husband will um, has an off farm job, so we might get to work on some farm projects together. Or we might work with his parents um, taking care of goats or something on the weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, you're so busy, Maggie. I know, but then it is kind of nice because in the winter time I'm not so busy. Yeah. So I said yeah. people and say, "What do you do in the winter?" And I'm like, "There's plenty to do," but <laughs> also um, I also get to rest a lot and read and do other things and yeah it's a real winter you know you get to experience a cycle you're not go 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 all the time and sometimes you want to be go 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 all the time right yes and yes i was giving so many details about how csa works that might be really boring but like one of my really biggest joys about having a farm is really feeling connected to the seasons so that i really feel them and like i really feel what the weather is And I really can't imagine not being that way. And also because I've only lived in Ohio, Indiana, and Kentucky. So I've traveled other places. I've only lived there. I've never lived a place that doesn't have like a really distinct summer, spring, fall, winter. And I really love that. And it's very hard for me to imagine living someplace where it doesn't have like a lot of the seasons aren't super, super different or you know, like spring is just like magical to me. And I like right now, I'm just like, love the weather. And I love (laughs) um, the day feeling the days get longer. And I love seeing like on the mountains right now where you can 
mostly see that you can see all the rocks and see the mountain, but there's just like little pops of green of mm. the trees coming out. And um, yeah, I kind of love that the days are short in the winter and that I have to be inside and I can eat supper at 6 p.m. And um, yeah, then like have a dark, yeah, a dark yeah. evening by the fire. And then I love that it's really long days in the summer. So you know, sometimes I get grumpy if I've been outside like harvesting kale in the rain all day, but I really do like feeling the connection to the seasons. It's one yeah. of my favorite things. Yeah. And that's probably a big part of why you're such a cheerful person. Yeah. And yeah. I I've I think I saw a bunch of my friends posting online this winter about just about how people in general or them themselves especially feeling grumpy and down in the winter and posting, you know, like, this is not what the rest of nature is doing in the wintertime. <laughs> and so I think I'm so grumpy because I still have to, like, get up and go to work. And I was like, I am so lucky yeah. that I end the winter. I'm like, oh, I don't have to work nearly as hard. <laughs> and I can just be like, oh, I'm going to, you know, be inside and or it's going to be dark yeah. and I'm just gonna, I don't have anywhere to go. And I... And one of the few people that really gets to be like, the winter is a time of rest and hibernation, whereas for other people, it's just the same as all the rest of the year, except it's dark and cold. Yeah. Yeah. I've learned to appreciate that because I grew up with no winter. (laughs) And I was very resistant to winter for years. But now I'm starting to appreciate it where you can just really you're almost forcing yourself to you know especially me I'm like I have to be doing something but then I felt that okay I'm being called to actually rest and do more thinking or do more writing or yeah it's hard for me to to rest (laughs) so the winter's been good I'm not great with the cold still but I'm a lot better than I was what was it like growing up in a vegetable farm and how old were you when you had to start helping out? Probably quite young. Yes, I don't really... Well, I do remember... So my fam, my parents um, and my uncle, they had a row crop operation raising corn and soybeans and tobacco. And they had a confinement hog barn. Like when I was born and when I was very young. Okay. But my parents and my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, everybody always had really big home gardens. And so I do remember being a kid, being like in the home garden a little bit. But my parents always had a roadside stand where they sold sweet corn that people could stop and like an honor system, put money in the can. You could take corn. Oh, wow. That's that's Um, cool. Like always. But when I was eight, my parents started selling at farmer's market produce. So um, that would have been the first year when they really more were like a working commercial farm. Well, I mean, obviously raising corn and soybeans are a commercial farm. But they had transitioned. Like they had got rid of a lot of their leased land. They weren't growing tobacco anymore at that time. And they had really gotten interested in the idea of organic agriculture in 1988, which was the year I was born. 
but they still were raising conventional row crops like in the early 90s. Okay. Um, But they always started out with their vegetable production um, being organic. And they actually started become they became certified organic in 1998. So I think they started selling at farmers market in 96. So pretty early, you know, on um, they were certified organic. So wow, they so most of the time I do remember growing up it being a vegetable farm and operation. And um, I don't really remember ever feeling unhappy about that okay you know i think i talked to a lot of people that have horror stories about like all we did growing up was we had to be out (laughs) in the garden but i never felt that way i was always really happy to be out there i mean i'm not gonna say that i never was like it's too hot and also i'm a very big reader so i love reading and I do remember, like, sometimes being like, I just want to be in the shade and reading. Or my okay. dad just being like, oh, you're doing reading. I need you to come out <laughs> here and work. But in general, I very much enjoyed it. Okay. It was very fulfilling to me to, like, see things grow and be outside and working with my parents. And I have two younger siblings who now, as adults, all three of us farm full time. So no I think that's very unusual for Whoa. kids that grew up on a farm, or I mean, for any um, group of siblings. So I don't know how my parents made that that happen, but whatever they were doing, I don't think any of us resented or hated doing farm work. They made it very fun, wow. and we have two creeks that were on that farm, and they would always, you know, be like, "If you, if we trellis two more beds of tomatoes, we can go swimming." And I remember like working in the garden wearing my swimsuit a lot so that I could just go like jump in the creek. And my mom would do it with us. My mom would be out there in her swimsuit working, which I can't imagine right now working in my swimsuit. I'm just like, I can't even imagine it. I was like, mosquitoes would be biting me. So like the fact that my mom was doing this with us, I was just like that. I don't know. My parents are just. She sounds really fun. My parents are lovely. So they started selling at farmer's market and mostly always were selling at farmer's market growing up. Now they do one farmer's market. They have an online farm store, like with an actual farm building. That's really nice. And they do a CSA and they also sell to like some fancy grocery stores. But when I was growing up, it was mostly all farmer's market. But it was really nice. And yeah, I mean, I sometimes, you know, in a lot of most farms that are selling at farmer's market too, Friday is really like a really big harvest day. So it's unusual that I currently right now, I'm like, Friday is my easy day. Yeah. But so I think sometimes like in high school, I'm even like, I want to go out with my friends on Friday night, but I have to be picking vegetables, getting <laughs> for farmer's market till 10 p.m. But yeah. um, I, I, that's a lie. It was never till 10 p.m. because I don't think I ever stayed up that late as a teenager, <laughs> which I also think is odd that I would always get in bed early, but I think that's just my personality. But um, I loved working on the farm and really enjoyed doing that with my parents and my siblings. And I think that that was something I, I always then wanted to farm as an adult. You knew that as a, a child? Yeah, I don't know if I knew it like as a very young child, but I, I ended up going to, I went to college and I did not go for ag degree or anything. So I think I thought I probably wouldn't farm, but it wasn't that I didn't want to. 
it was more of a how could I support myself farming. Right. And I think especially, you know, I was a very good student in high school. And when you get good grades and people just like expect that you should go to college or they did in my family and the place I lived at. Yeah. So, and I was the oldest and I think my parents like, you will go to school. My mom did go to college. My dad did not. And I was very lucky I went. I got a really wonderful scholarship. I really had no student loans afterwards. Very small amount. So That's I was awesome. very lucky. I made, and I really that was a really conscious thing to me and my family because my parents didn't have money to send us to college. That where I would go, I'd have to be able to pay for it. So if I wouldn't have worked out that way, I might not have went, but it did. And I had a really wonderful experience there. Um, ended up with a biology and outdoor education degree, thinking that I maybe would work in a, like environmental education or as a teacher. But I really do want to farm. I think I just thought, like, what does that look like? Right. Like, I thought, you know, I maybe could come back and farm with my parents or one of my siblings want to have a business with me. But they were younger than me. So, you know, I'm like, what would I do? And just trying to figure myself out as a young adult. Yeah. And, you know, what am I going to do? But I, in my mind, back of my mind, you know, I'm like, but I would really love to farm. I've... My whole life has been on this farm. It's really wonderful. Oh. And one of the other things I think I really liked farming with my parents was that I said my dad had farmed with my uncle, his brother, okay. doing row crops and stuff. So by the time they had kind of been done with that, my uncle really wasn't involved with the vegetable production. My parents did raise livestock as well. So they did a lot of pastured poultry that they butchered on farm and would sell to people that come pick up at the farm. So my uncle and aunt, they did a lot of the pastured poultries too. And so like chicken butchering days were kind of like a big party. (laughs) That sounds really horrible, but because it was just more like my... Papa would be there and all my aunts and uncles and some of my dad's <laughs> friends because it took like a lot of people to do, yeah. you know, 250 chickens at once or a hundred turkeys. So there'd be lots of people over and I really enjoy to this day working on a hands-on project with other people, That's especially, beautiful. you know, like people that are your friends or your close family members. It makes me feel very close to people. So... Um, in my, like, I wouldn't want to farm, but I don't know who I do it with. I was like, you know, and I don't know if I would ever find a spouse that would want to do what I want to do. You know, that seems like really outlandish. Like, I'm not even talking about like a normal, like, you know, I grew up in the vast cornfields of Ohio. So I'm like, who wants to like raise pastured poultry with me and like sell vegetables? Like, this is a pipe dream that will never happen. So it was always something I wanted to do. It wasn't something I thought I would get to do. So, um, but I had moved to Kentucky to work for Grow Appalachia, which is a like home gardening support organization. They do more things now, but this is like the first year of Grow Appalachia. So so I'm like, well, I got a job doing something with farming. And that was really wonderful and kind of unforeseen 
to me um, that that would happen. So that was really wonderful. And then I ended up meeting Will, and he was already farming with his dad, raising like ro- um, livestock that was rotationally grazed. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like I don't know how this has happened. And then Will liked me back, and I'm like, it's all coming together. So I just feel like so lucky that I get to farm. Because I did always want to. And I guess I did really always know. I just was a thing I didn't know if I'd get to do. This is great. Can you share the story of how you met Will? Yes. So um, Will and I met at the Southern Sustainable Agriculture Working Group Conference. (laughs) So long. (laughs) Yes. And uh, and it was in Chattanooga and in, in January of 2011. And they, that conference is like a sustainable agriculture conference for like all the southern states. So one portion of the conference is they have like networking rooms by state. So I was in that networking room and then everybody went around and introduced themselves. And that's also where I met Ford Waterstrapped because he was also at that conference because Will at that time, he was working as a wildlife biologist, but he also was working with the Redbird Farmers Project, which was something through Heifer International. Okay. And they had, like, paid to take people from the area to this conference. And I think that Ford had been, like, in Will's group that Will took to the conference. But as soon as I met Will, I was like, that's it. That's the person. That's my person. It was <laughs> – I mean, that sounds so nuts to say that. I think people don't believe me. And I'm like, when I say it to him, he's like, that's – no. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry you didn't feel the same way. But I did know. And so – Love it for sake. Yeah. And it's so true. I went over to him. You know, I was kind of like, oh, we don't live that much far, that far away from each other. So it was <laughs> fun. And he had given me his business card. Well, I like went back to my hotel room that night and I was reading on the business card and I realized I knew of him because of like the really cool um, livestock and like holistic livestock management stuff he was doing because the organization I worked with, like they wanted him to come like talk as a speaker. So like I, that kind of got me like, oh, he's a famous person, like (laughs) which is ridiculous because he's not a famous person, but he's a famous, he's a Kentucky farming person. So I had seen him the next morning at the conference and I said, hi, and I don't know why I'm telling this on myself because Will never lets me leave it down. I like was like, hi, you're the Will Bowling. And then I like ran away because I was like, because I was feeling really nervous and like I had all these butterflies and I was kind of like, he's my person. And I never felt that about anyone else I'd ever dated. Like another terrible story I shouldn't tell myself was like in high school, my boyfriend, you know, right there and he's like, we should talk about us. And I'm like, okay. Like, just like, what, what about it? Like, I didn't, I was like, I don't know why we're dating. Like, I don't really like you. Like, I don't know. I just have never really, that's not bad. So my other people I have dated, I didn't like you. I just never felt the way that I felt about Will, like, immediately. And so I kind of, I had to run away. But we eventually found each other again, except the next time we saw each other was, like, two months later at a square dance. (laughs) but I came to the square dance with my friend Jason and Will came to the square dance with his sister Veronica well I didn't know that was his sister and 
well, didn't know that Jason wasn't my partner. Right. So then we're just like, oh. Oh. With somebody else. Yeah. So it took us a few more months to figure out that we were both single. And then it was wonderful. So anyway. (laughs) (laughs) But what's funny about that farming conference is I know two other couples that met at that same farming conference. Not in the same year. Right. But at that conference at different times. So when later on when my brother was trying to find a partner i was like you know you really should just start going to farming conferences <laughs> it worked for me i know it's been a success for other people but um that's not how my brother found his wife um although he did find her through farming because she worked for my parents so okay i love that <laughs> that's so much fun it was fun <laughs> so earlier before i came here i was i remembered that story that you told us about I was telling Jack and Nina about the the um, the dung beetles. <laughs> Can you share that story? You were saying because was it when before Will before Will and his parents started doing the oh yes yeah about using the warmer yes yes that's it so um, with our livestock as well. We're trying, you know, traditionally, not not traditionally, that's the wrong word. Um, You know, it's standard practice right now to be worming your animals for intestinal parasites because they definitely will get them. But we have really tried to not be giving our animals anything that's unnecessary. So one of the benefits of rotationally grazing your animals, which if you don't know, is mean that you're like kind of rotating them through all your pastures which standard practice might be more that you have this field over here and it's like where the cows are in the summer and then they might be over here in the fall and you might be moving your cattle around but ours are more like every two days they're getting moved to like another small session section every two days and sometimes it might be twice in one day what it it really depends on what kind of forage is in the pasture they're currently on wow. and what time of year it is. That's amazing. So it really, it's really dependent. Yeah. What pasture they're in, what time of year it is. Some days they might be in a section, you know, a week. It really depends on what they're in. So, um, and there are a lot of benefits for that and animals eating different forages in their pasture. And then it also gives, like, if you see sometimes, I'm getting off track here a little bit, a pasture where, like, there's very, very short grass, Mm -hmm. you know, which is pretty common to see, but that's really not good. If you eat the grass down too low, it's harder for the grass to rebound and grow back. When animals are eating way down close to the ground, they're more likely to get, like, those parasites that might live, like, way down in the crown at the base of the grass clump or the forage clump. Okay. So... Um, part of the reason of rotating them is that we're never eating the grass down that far. So you're watching for that. Right. And that's when we know to move them. Like we're like seeing how much they eat and how far they're going to eat it down. And then when it gets down to like how far we want them to eat that. It also encourages them if you're keeping them in a small spot like that, like some forages that are, might be in your pasture if you haven't planted it into something specific. That cows are like, I don't really like that. I just want to come through and high graze. And I want to eat the candy of the grass. Like, I'm just going to eat the clover out. I don't like that. 
And then they can just go around the whole big place and do that. But if you keep them in a smaller space, like the mm-hmm. whole day, then they will be like, okay, well, I have to eat my broccoli. You know, I have to eat my <laughs> other grass over here. And they'll eat like everything. But you are watching for like how much they've eaten. Okay. And then you need to move them into the next section, like as soon as they've eaten down to that level. So one part of trying to like not have to worm the animals is not letting them eat down to the bare dirt because then they're not eating like the part of the plant that might be harboring some of the intestinal parasites that came out of like the last cow's poop. Yeah. So, but in other ways, we're also multi-species grazing. So like after the cows go through in that rotation, then the sheep are going to come behind them. And they're going to kind of like eat different things and they're not usually going to get like the parasites that the cows have. Yeah. Okay. So it kind of like cleans it up and then... We do move our chickens around, but they don't go in every pasture because some of them, our pastures are on a hill and the house can't like sit on the steep hill, but you know, yes, the chicken house, which is an old hay wagon on wheels. So we can move it around so it can kind of come after the cows, but it it can't go in all of the pastures. It can only go in the flat ones. Um, And then we have goats. So anyway, we're trying to kind of clean up the pastures with different species of animals are going to eat like eating different forages but they're also not going to be susceptible to the same parasites so maybe Mm -hmm. in a rotation where rotating them in those small batches means that this specific section that you graze the cows on today they might not be in that same spot for months and between them being here today and them being here in august or something there's been other animals that have come through there and maybe kicked up the poop or you know they got the they are kind of cleaning up those parasites. So we haven't had so much parasite problems, so we don't have to worm as much. Mm -hmm. But before, when Will and his dad first um, were farming, and Ronnie, Will did not grow up on the farm that his parents have. His parents bought that farm when Will was um, in college. Right. Um, Because they, he grew up, he, um, his family always had, a vegetable garden and maybe spray some hogs for themselves, but they were not farming commercially. And he grew up in a head of a hauler and his parents ran a like country grocery store, convenience store. And before that, Will's dad worked in the coal mine. So they bought this farm when Will was in college. And so they kind of got it and we're like, we're raising cattle. You know, we don't have experience with like, they have a lot of pasture. So what do you do with these big amount of pasture? You have cows. And so they're raising them in a more standard way with giving the cows warmer. That's recommended to do. So after they started doing all of the cattle um, and rotational multi-species grazing and not worming them anymore, they noticed that all the cow piles would be full of dung beetles. Mm -hmm. And they never seen that before when they were worming the cows, I think because the dung beetles, which are everywhere in the pasture, you know, would not come into the cow patties that had the wormer on them. Yeah. Because they saw that as poison. So it's like really neat now to go out in the pasture and you'll see a cow patty that, you know, has like the crusted over like top layer. But like if you flip that off, like a lot of times there'll just be like nothing underneath it anymore because the dung beetles have completely covered it up. If you have a fresher one, like you can really see the dung beetles in it. Um, My nieces are 
nine and six right now. I'm not sure if they're currently doing it, but definitely a couple years ago, they would like love to get in the cow patties and find like <laughs> what dung beetles and worms and stuff were in them. But you just wouldn't see that in an animal that yeah. has wormer. So we do still occasionally have to worm some animals, um, sometimes sheep. Um, like mama sheep that are just, you can tell they're having a really hard time, but really trying not to do that. Yeah. And also trying to select livestock that are, you know, maybe stronger and their genetics, they just don't mm. get worms as much. So a lot of times if we are seeing there's a specific ewe that needs wormed a bunch, we might sell her and take her to the cell barn and like keeping back stock that really they can withstand a lot of the parasites. Yeah. I love that story. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty fun. It's something I forget about, so I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, dung beetles. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I'm just like, oh, yeah. I'm like, what about dung beetles? They're here. Like, I forget about, you know, like where we've come from and the journey sometimes. Yeah. I just, I love that. That it's, yeah, that you do things naturally and that you get to see, yeah, the effects of that. Because it's, it's more work, I guess. It's not really more work. It's just... You had to make a change. You do have to make change. And right. making change is hard. And yeah. there are a lot of things in my like vegetable production, too, that I wish I was doing differently that would be more sustainable or more natural. And it feels like such a insurmountable like mountain to move mm. to get to a place where it would work because you know i'm just like well that'll make there be more weeds or something like this and i or i just don't have any more labor hours in the day to yeah. do it that way but the dung beetle story is encouraging to remember that like it might be hard to like figure out how to make the new system work well and it's gonna take time yeah but the end result probably is worth it yeah it is. And it's just, you're always evolving, right? And you just make small changes. Although that one's probably, that was a big change all at once. Yeah. Because, yeah, like, that's a lot of work to move the animals twice a day. It is. And thankfully, most of the year we're not moving them that much. Yeah. So. And it is work. I mean, and there's so many ways to make it a lot easier so just like setting up your fences so that it's easier to make this a small section with temporary fence, but yeah. having permanent fences where you can pull off of, which when you start out and you're like, well, we just have this one big pasture. It's like, oh, I have to be setting up these fences to move them. And then it just has take a lot of time to do that. So even right now, I'm looking out the window at my husband, Will, and our neighbor, Josh, who are planting um nut trees pawpaws and persimmons in one of our pastures and because we are converting some of our pasture land into solo pasture which means that there are trees um in your pasture so a lot of that is for shade for animals because if you have noticed that you have livestock or even your chickens um, they don't like it to even be like 70 degrees. They're going to try to be in the shade and then they're not going to be out grazing and they'll get really stressed and drink more water. Mm. So um, I was joking with Will a little bit that the people who lived here, you know, a couple hundred years ago, they fought really hard to dig all the, <laughs> cut down and dig all the oh, trees, really? you know, that would have been in this pasture, would it would have been forested, you know, hundreds of years ago. So I don't know when 
people cut these trees down, but they're probably like horrified that um, we're like, we want to put trees in that pasture. And I definitely think there's lots of farmers that think we're weird for putting trees in the pasture, but we're very excited about having these trees for shade, but also hopefully for some nut and fruit production. But in one of our, we did one of our other pastures last year, but putting these like rows of trees in there, we also put, um, when they're really young, a line of electric fence next to the trees so that goats or cows aren't like, oh, I think I'll eat this tree. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, that's a fence. I can't touch it. It's electric. So it has made it nice of even for grazing, rotation, rotating the cows around because it's made like more fences within the big pasture that we can just take like a little temporary mm-hmm. fence between them and say, okay, you stand between these line of trees for two days and then you'll go to the next line yeah. of trees. So. Um, you know, that wasn't an unintended consequence of planting the trees, but it's been Mm. really useful for helping us move them around. So it is encouraging to think about like all the little changes you make over time that will be better. Like when we bought this farm, it was just completely grown up in briars. And so sometimes when I get discouraged about how things aren't, you know, as efficient or set up correctly, or I have so many weeds, you know, it's nice to be like, looking back we've come a long way or you know now we have dung beetles so yeah it's good to be reminded thank you for reminding me about like progress and small changes it's beautiful here i lent you that movie right biggest yes i need to give it back to you oh do you still have i do i know where it is (laughs) okay good because i don't even remember anymore (laughs) if you gave it back or not No, i have it and it's in it's in that chest Okay, so for anyone listening, if you haven't seen Biggest Little Farm, it's the first movie, and it's amazing, and I'm just, I was super excited about it, and it's so great that I know some someone. I know Maggie and her family are actually doing, doing that amazing stuff from that movie. And I, there was a time where I was super geeking out about this stuff, <laughs> and I would just sit and, like, daydream about being, like, a grass farmer like Joel Salatin and yes. like doing all the moving around I was reading all about it and so I'm really excited to talk to Ronnie I don't know if I'll ever do that in the future but it's just like a a nice dream yeah you know to to have the silvo pasture and your fruit trees and you get the animals in to clean up you know the, yes the fallen fruit and help with the just the, excuse me the pest cycles and I yes. just love that whole dance of it that you can participate Me too. in. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah, so you're I... you're so fortunate to to be working in this place. Yes, I am very fortunate to be. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I have two last questions because it's starting to get dark. Yes, I know. I was like, <laughs> I've been talking too much, Francis. I have to let you go. No, it's okay. I yeah, I could talk to you for ages, but okay. So I wanted to hear some funny stories, but. Maybe you can just share like a couple or something. Because the one thing that I remembered that you told me that I thought was so funny was, well, it's not, it's not super funny, but it's kind of funny when you said that people would just like drop off their roosters and just throw their roosters over your fence because they wanted to get rid of them. Like, oh, look, they're chickens. Maybe they'll take our rooster. Yes, that would happen all the time um, growing up because my parents live on a very busy road and so when you would go oh. out to check on the chickens in the morning there would just be more chickens but they'd all be <laughs> roosters <laughs> thankfully at the farm I live at right now um, 
we're not next to the road to get to our farm. You have to come back a gravel lane that's um, 0.4 miles and maybe kind of creepy. So I've never woken up here with extra roosters. <laughs> Good. Do you have any roosters? You I do not have any roosters, okay. now. <clears throat> so you would know. <laughs> I would know. I would know if there was a rooster in there. Well, yeah. I have a rooster, so I'll just... Okay, I'm going to be <laughs> watching for your car coming up the driveway. <laughs> and if there's one in there, I'm just blaming it on you. Yeah. Yeah. We have one rooster, and I can't catch him anyway. Okay. So, I don't know. He's just going to have to stay there. I mean, we're not feeding... Like, I'm not buying feed anymore, because he's just yeah. one rooster. So I'm just feeding him, you know, our kitchen scraps. Yes. I mean, he, he gets a lot of it. But um, he's surviving on just bugs, grass, whatever. Well, he'll be prepared for when you leave <laughs> and he has to figure out what to do, I guess. <laughs> I know, I feel bad, though. There's a goat that lives on this cliff that's right across from my house. Okay. And um, I don't know where it came from. But people come down here all the time being like, your goat is on the mountain. And I keep saying, it's not my goat. And they just look at me and they're like, that's a lie. Like, it's 100% your goat. But it's not my goat. And some people came down here last spring looking for goats. And we kind of were talking to them. We're like, well, what about your fence? Like, oh, they weren't in a fence. And we're like, okay, well, then they did probably wander off. So we think it's one of theirs, but that man came back down here again last fall and said, your goat's over there. And I was like, isn't it your goat? I don't, I'm, so I don't know whose it is, but we don't know what it's eating or anything. And I don't know. I mean, it's just living like a mountain goat, but we watch it. When the leaves come back on the trees, we won't be able to see it. Like, Will just watches it all day. He'll be like, it's running now. Now it's in a little hole out of the rain. And we just watch it over there on the cliff. But it's not our goat. But, yeah, we can't. And then people are like, why don't you try to catch it? And I'm like, I mean, it never comes down off of there. If it, I guess it could come down here if it wanted. But they're, they're, they're not. They're herd animals. So it's so unusual. It's, it's so bizarre. <laughs> And it's been up there probably for a year now. It was last spring. That's so crazy. Yeah. Do you know if it's male or female? We, you know, I don't know. We've been calling it a boy, but I've never been close enough to see. I don't know if someone told us that. Yeah, I don't know. That's so interesting. I'm going to tell the kids they'll love yeah. that. They'll love that yes. story. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Have you got any other crazy stories that you could remember before we wrap up? <laughs> I don't know that I can think of anything off the top of my... Oh, I do have one funny one. Okay. But this is more so... I was telling Francis before we started recording just how enjoyable, too, it has been to work with other people that have come to work on the farm and kind of get to share, um, you know, like other people's enthusiasm about farming. Mm-hmm. Um, and one year, I had a woman from Ireland who had come to visit friends in Eastern Kentucky for the summer, and she really wanted to see some farms. So she came out a few times and worked with me. And so we were, and it's the thing, you know, you just get so used to what you see in your own life, you don't realize Mm -hmm. other people's experiences. So at one point she was like moving something and she said, is it a giant worm? And I was like, that's a snake. And she then she started dancing around going, my first snake, my first snake. And I was like, oh, are there really no snakes in Ireland? And she was like, St. Patrick 
um, drove all the snakes of Ireland. And I was like, oh, so there really are no snakes. She's like, there's no snake. And she was so excited about the snake. And it was a little mud snake that's like brown and the color of the dirt and like eight inches long. It was a tiny little snake. So that, I mean, it's understandable that she asked if it was a worm. But she was oh, so okay. excited about Aww. that snake. And I'll always remember about just like, you know, ever really understand like, you know, what other people's <laughs> experiences are. So that's awesome. Yeah. I get excited when I see snakes too. <laughs> Probably I mean, not as excited as her, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I did, yeah, the St. Patrick's Day thing. Apparently that's not... Anyway, we'll talk about that another time. Yeah. But that he drove the snakes away. But were there really snakes in Ireland? I don't know. She was saying it like in a joking manner. Right, You okay. know, just to drive the point home to me that yeah, she had not seen a snake before. <laughs> Bless her heart. Yeah, I, I feel like there just weren't snakes there. But Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> I don't know that I believe it was St. Patrick Park, but anyway, that was a memorable experience that I really enjoyed. I love that you had people from other countries come here. That's really fun. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to do that. One day I'll have my own Yes. Big piece of land and I'll have all these people over and we're gonna have a great time. Yes. Yeah. You'll have to visit. Yeah, I look forward to it. <laughs> we'll probably move back to Kentucky because I love it here. I I'm really glad you love like it. it. Yeah, it's brilliant. Really good. If not Kentucky, Tennessee, but I do like it here a lot. Well, I'm very glad to hear that. Yeah. All right, ready for the last I'm question? <laughs> you know what it is already. I do, but I didn't come up with anything. <laughs> well, you can take your time because I can delete the silent part. But if you could tell the world just one thing, what would it be? I think it would be just to remind people that you really don't know what other people's experiences are truly. And so sometimes um, that can bring you lots of wonder and joy, like with Maraid and seeing the snake. Yeah. Um, but also you just don't really know what other people's pain or experiences are. But um, I'm very much an optimist and I guess joyous person, as you said. So I think mm-hmm. I always like... I can find the good and other people. And I'm very excited about um, meeting and hearing other people's experiences, which is why I very much enjoyed your podcast. So oh, I look forward you. to hearing all of them as you're traveling and meeting people in other areas. So thank you. I very you. much enjoyed that. But um, yeah, I just, you never know what you don't know mm-hmm. um, really in general about everything, but especially I think with other people. Yeah. I love that about you, Maggie. And I think that, that your energy, you know, you bring that to your work and to the food that you grow and it makes it yummy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. That wraps up episode five. Once again, I always appreciate the time that you spend here with me. I will include in the show notes Maggie's website if you would like to connect with her and also her Instagram account. If you live in this area of Kentucky, I would highly recommend that you connect with Maggie and join her CSA. Support your local farmers. They work very hard and they grow beautiful food. There was a movie that I mentioned during our conversation called Biggest Little Farm. It's one of the best movies I've seen, especially on the topic of regenerative farming and it's just really the cinematography is 
is a feast for the eyes. So I'll add a link to that. Highly, highly recommend that movie. And if this is your first time listening to the podcast, I usually invite you to listen with me to a song of the week. Maybe I'll make a playlist too, a harmony of stories playlist. But the song this week is with a little help from my friends. I'll add that in the show notes too. And finally, on my website, wildflower.cloud, there's a page on there called Journal. A bit later today, I'll post some pictures from Maggie's farm so you can see what it looks like and what she has on offer there, what they're growing, what they grow throughout the year. And I also have a page on my site called Support My Work. And I invite you to check that out to see how you can support the podcast if you feel called to. I love you all so much and I hope you have a magical day.